0: All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're taking a little bit of a couple weeks break from our our study in Ephesians. We'll get back to that next week, and I am very excited. Uh, Kent and I were talking in between services this morning about where we're headed in Ephesians, and I really encourage as we jump into the latter half of Ephesians next week, it gets really, really practical. In those first three chapters, there's a lot of Theology, and it's a lot of thinking about who we are in Christ. And these last three chapters that we're getting ready to jump into next week are talking all about because of who we are in Christ. Now, here's what we do that this is not a faith that's just head knowledge, this is a practical, practical faith. And I hope you're going to see some of that even today as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This takes us back, if you were here. Uh, In August, I preached a couple of messages in a series that I called Gospel Distortions. And we're kind of coming back to that idea. And, And let me just preface it a little bit this morning. There are in every age issues of social and political importance that threaten to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ for those in that generation. You go all the way back to this particular book of the Bible, and Paul spends three chapters addressing an issue that is completely meaningless to us. They're talking here in chapters 8, 9, and 10 of 1 Corinthians, talking about the issue of meat sacrifice to idols. Now, for how many of you is that a big daily struggle? Many, I mean, how many of you go to Walmart and you're like, I wonder if my hamburger came from the temple of Aphrodite? Okay, we don't, we don't struggle with that, right? But you need to understand that for the Corinthian church, this was huge. This was an, an issue that not only threatened to distort the gospel, but it threatened to divide the church. And so Paul spends a huge Portion of his time in this book addressing this issue because of its ramifications on the gospel. Paul wasn't interested in addressing issues for issues' sakes, he didn't care about the politics. And let me go ahead and tell you this morning, I don't either. This was not about politics, it was not about social issues. He is talking about the gospel here, and that's what I hope to do this morning. So We're going to jump into this uh, together today. I've entitled uh, this message, The Black and White and Gray. I'm going to go ahead and explain that title before we get into it this morning. There are many things in this book that are black and white issues. The gospel is the first and foremost of those. The Bible says, there is only one name given under heaven by which we might be saved. That name is Jesus Christ. There is no other way of salvation, black and And white, that is black and white. Jesus himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, black and white. And we can go on and on with these things that are black and white from a scriptural perspective. And yet, and yet, in God's grace and in his infinite wisdom, he chose to leave some things in what we would call a gray area. Now, this is where we find ourselves divided. Denominationally, politically, socially, economically, these gray areas can be a source of division in the church, but that's not what the Lord intended. He left some areas gray because there's a reason for the gray areas. I hope you will see it this morning, and that we would be the kind of folks who would not seek to make that which is black and white gray, nor to make that which is gray appear black and white. Would you stand with me, in honor of God's word, this morning as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The Apostle Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, and as indeed there are many gods and many lords, notice those are in quotation marks, we'll come back to those phrases in a moment. Yet, for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as though really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off And wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And in verse 13, Paul says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Be seated. Father, I pray you'd help us this morning. We're going to speak of some difficult things today. Some issues that could easily divide us. And yet you have called us to a greater sense of unity, even especially in those areas where we don't agree with one another. There is a greater rule of law at work, and I pray we would see it today. We ask this in Jesus' name. first thing we need to be reminded of is that the gospel does get distorted. It is the devil's number one tactic that if he cannot keep you from the gospel, he would like to distort the gospel that you have. If he cannot keep you from the truth, then to distort the truth, That you have. And this happens all the time in our churches. We find ourselves commending things that the Bible never commends. We find ourselves condemning things that the Bible never condemns. We find ourselves drawing lines the Bible does not draw. We find ourselves erasing lines the Bible does draw. And all in this is the fact that the gospel gets distorted. That's what Paul's been addressing really all through the book of 1 Corinthians is this theme of things that distort the gospel and him bringing the truth to bear on those issues so that the people would not be led astray because they were being led astray. It was no hypothetical. They were being led astray in their belief. He is as critical of the church at Corinth as he is of any other church, which is ironic that our name is... Corinth Baptist Church. Paul had not a lot of love for the church at Corinth in terms of he wasn't soft selling anything to those folks. They were a mess and they needed to hear some of the hard things he had to say. So when does the gospel get distorted? First of all, the gospel gets distorted when learning overrides loving. Look at those first three verses. This is huge. If you don't take away anything else today, I hope that you will take this thought home and dwell on it because this is the focus of what Paul is trying to teach us. He says, Now concerning food offered to idols, again, not an issue we deal with. We'll get to some issues we really deal with here in just a minute. We know that, we all, that all of us possess knowledge. Notice that's in quotation marks. He's referencing the fact that they had sent him a letter. He, re- he talks about this earlier in this book. The Corinthians had sent him a letter asking some questions some practical questions, things they were dealing with. And apparently there had been several points in that letter when they had reveled in their knowledge, like they had arrived at some great point. And he said, well, we know. We know that all of us possess knowledge. But then he gets down to the brass tacks. But this knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. That's a good word, isn't it? But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. You see, the Corinthians were convinced that their knowledge had led them to a place of maturity in Christ. So you, you had two groups in the Corinthian church. You had those who had been walking with Christ for a while, who had come to faith in Christ some time ago, and they had gotten to the place in their walk where they felt like they had arrived at some knowledge okay, they, they had come to the place where they felt like they had arrived at some knowledge. And that particular piece of knowledge that Paul's talking about is they began to realize that in Christ they had great freedoms. That ought to elicit an amen from us. But moving on, they have great freedoms. In Christ, we don't we don't think about this oftentimes in in church. We see the church so much as a place of rules and laws and regulations. And you begin to read the gospel, and you see it's not about rules and laws and regulations. It's about the grace of God poured out through the blood of His Son at an old rugged cross, and He set you free from sin and death. And you're no longer live with you under the thumb of the law, but you live by grace through faith in Christ. Finally an amen. Thank you, Kaylee. Get to something good here. But sometimes, sometimes we think we get to a place we've learned a little bit and we love Bible knowledge in the American church. It's ironic today. There are more biblical resources for you to know this word than any former generation has had. You can go on Bible.org and you can find more resources than John Calvin ever thought about having. You can go on BibleGateway.com and you can find more ways to study and to know this word than Martin Luther ever dreamed there would be. And yet, we live in one of the most biblically illiterate generations there has ever been. It's not because we have a lack of knowledge. I think it's because we have a lack of love. It's a heart issue. Because... As long as what you have is just here, you gain knowledge, but you don't gain the practical outworking of that knowledge, which is love. By love here, understand. I'm not talking about an emotional sentimentality. I'm not talking about a feeling of the butterflies in your stomach. I'm talking about love, which is action. It is an action that is centered on the benefit of the other. Loving your neighbor as yourself. But sometimes our learning overrides our loving. Here's what we need to know this morning. First of all, the gospel's goal is not growth in knowledge, but growth in love. And that flies in the face of much of American Christianity today. We have 10,000 studies on every topic and we think we need to know something, we are struggling with a particular issue, and so we go grab this parenting study, or we grab uh, this study on relationships, or we grab this study on this addiction, or we grab, well, there's just studies everywhere, and we begin to get into this mindset that the Christian life is all about studies, and how many studies have you done? Have you done this study? Have you done that study? Did you enjoy experiencing God? Did Did you enjoy not a fan? We begin to think that that's what this life is about, that the Christian life is about gaining knowledge. Now, don't hear me wrongly. I'm not saying that there is not a pursuit of knowledge in the Christian life. We're not meant to live the Christian life as spiritual idiots. But the goal of the gospel is not head knowledge. The goal of the gospel is love. And here's the point. Knowledge without love produces pride. That's what he says here. He says... In, in verse 2, I'm sorry, verse 1, the end of verse 1, he says, This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, what's the difference? If I were to have a, a balloon here and I were to blow that, if I were to puff up that balloon, I were to blow up that balloon, it would take nothing but a needle to pop that and to burst it. That's kind of how knowledge can be. Knowledge, apart from love, is like that balloon. It, it really doesn't have much stability in and of itself. But when he says love builds up, it's as if we're building a brick wall of love. It's going to be a whole lot harder to pop that, to burst that. Because love that's built on knowledge and knowledge that's connected to love is the root force of the gospel. Knowledge without love produces pride and pride is the root of The vast majority of our sins, pride is the root of jealousy, pride is the root of self-centeredness, pride is the root of judgmentalism, pride is the root of so many of the things that we struggle with. And a lot of times pride becomes because we've got some knowledge, but we don't have the love that goes along with it. If anyone thinks he knows, he probably doesn't know as he ought to know, Paul says. So moving on from there, I'm talking about a difficult situation, difficult subject in our culture, and I begin to think about, okay, we obviously we don't deal with meat sacrificed to idols. I'm not going to go to Walmart and wonder where my hamburger's coming from. That's that's not an issue for me. It's not an issue for you, uh, unless you just you know prefer to have a, a special quality of meat. Uh, if you want that, go see Eric St. Clair; he'll tell you where to get that. But we don't struggle with this issue. But what is the issue for us? And I began to wrestle with this several weeks ago as I was contemplating what I would preach on this particular Sunday. And the one thing just came clearly to my mind. The one issue in in our county here, I'm going to get real personal today on what I think is the number one gray area issue that we struggle with right here, right here in this place called Breckenridge County. It's the hot button and has been for the last year or so. I want to talk with you for a moment about Three Christian views on alcohol. Now, some of you are going to immediately have the reaction that alcohol is a black and white issue. I, I know that. And I was raised in that place. I was raised in the place where we were told that black, black and white alcohol, alcohol was a black and white issue. I'm going to challenge your thinking a little bit today as we look at what the Word actually says. There's three views that I want you to know about. First of all, there's a prohibitionist view. This is basically what, what I was raised under. And the idea with the prohibitionist view is this. All alcohol is evil all the time. That, that's, where, that's really where it goes. All alcohol is evil all the time. Christians should avoid it. You should avoid anybody who associates with it. You shouldn't go anywhere near a bar. All alcohol is evil. And so you should do everything you can to war against alcohol because alcohol is the problem. Okay, just stay with me. You may get upset, but just stay with me for a little bit longer. The abstentionist view. The abstentionist view says that alcohol is not evil, but that it's a bad idea. Okay, so the problem is not alcohol. The problem is those who would misuse alcohol. And so because some people misuse alcohol, then we should all abstain from alcohol. So it's wise in this crescent culture to abstain from alcohol because it might be abused. Okay, that's the abstentionist view. You'll probably find yourself in one of these three uh, views, I'm guessing. The last view, probably the least popular today, is the moderationist view, which says alcohol is not evil, it's not even necessarily a bad idea, but it is a gift from God that is not to be abused. They reference Psalm 24, 1, which says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. A better translation of that would be, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything in this earth belongs to God, and it can either be used to glorify Him, or it can be abused in a sinful manner. Everything's that way. Our human sexuality is that way. It is a gift of God that is not meant to be abused, and it can be abused, and it has often been abused. So there's the three views. Find yourself somewhere in the mix of this. If you would, just mentally. I'm not going to ask for a raising of hands. We won't draw political lines here this morning. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you where, where I would be at this point. I'm somewhere between, I, even in saying there's three views, there's a multiplicity of views in between those views. Okay? Uh, we don't have time to go into that today. But I would be somewhere between the abstentionist view and the moderationist view. That's, I'd be somewhere in that category. Um, I may talk more about that before we finish up, but it doesn't matter where I am because Paul is ultimately talking about this is a matter of personal conscience. That's what the Corinthians were dealing with. For some of the Corinthians, eating the meat that was sacrificed to idols, was, it didn't mean anything to them because they knew. They said, well, idols are nothing. This is just me. Let's go have a hamburger. But for others, it was a big deal because they had come out of an idolatry where they when they saw that hamburger, it reminded them of, false worship that they used to give their lives to and they couldn't get away from that so what does the bible say i'm going to just paint the broad strokes here so just bear with me um you know if you if you guys want to we probably don't have the time this morning uh, but there are over 200 references to uh, wine in the bible if you want we'll go one by one through those man no, no <laughs> it's a tough crowd today i'm telling you Starts in Genesis chapter 10, by the way. If you want to see the first reference, uh, sorry, Genesis chapter 9. Uh, First reference to wine in the Bible occurs with Noah. You remember that story? Noah gets off the boat, builds himself a vineyard, uh, has a few too many drinks, and ends up naked in his tent. There's a whole, it's a fun story. You ought to read it. Uh, (laughs) It really is. It's a great story. Um, Of course, we begin to see right there the effects of alcohol abuse. And you go on from there, and you see Lot, Abraham's nephew. If you don't know what happened to him when he got drunk, you really ought to read that one. That would make one of those, uh, you know, soap opera type episodes going on there. I'm not going to ruin that for you. You have to go look it up on your own. But there are 200 references from Genesis to Revelation. We have references to wine, the primary alcoholic beverage that was around during the biblical times, fermented. Uh, the fermented juice of grapes primarily is what we would be talking about here. Over 200 references to wine in the Bible. And as you look through these, I challenge you, go home and Google and go onto to BibleGateway or Bible.org and put the word wine into that search engine and begin to read the references. Over 200 references and primarily, the primary context of those references is positive. It'll surprise you. You'll find wine used... In worship, you'll find wine used in the Lord's Supper. You'll, you'll find wine given as a blessing of God to His people. When they were going into the promised land, one of the things that they were looking forward to was the new wine that they were going to be able to enjoy together. You will find that primarily, primarily in the Bible, the overwhelming emphasis toward wine in and of itself is a positive one, a gift of God, but yet again, not to be abused. same time, there are over 50 references to drunkenness in the Bible. Now understand this clearly. They are all, every last one is given in a negative context. There is no room made in the Bible uh, for any question as to whether drunkenness, the abuse of alcohol is an issue. Now I know immediately what's going to come into the minds of some is going to be, well, how drunk is drunk? And guess what? I'm not going to answer that question this morning. Because, first of all, I think it's a stupid question. I'm just being straight with you. I think it's a stupid question. But I also think what we would do, if I were to try to answer that question, if I were to tell you, well, you can have two beers, you can have three beers, you're going to have as many as you can have without crossing the line. That's what sin does to us, doesn't it? It's the same thing when I used to talk with teenagers about about sex. They want to know how far is too far. Why do they want to know the answer to that question? So they can know how far they can go. How do I know that? Because I did it. Because I did it, I'm the one who asked the question so that I would know how far I could go with my girlfriend without being in sin. But here's the problem. When you draw the line and you toe the line, before long you cross the line. That's just the reality of, of what it means to be a sinner. So where do we go from there? Well, overwhelmingly, if we were to look at the totality of what Scripture teaches, we can say this that the Bible clearly condemns alcohol abuse, drunkenness, the misuse, the addiction to alcohol. It's clearly condemned in Scripture, but it's not so clear on its use in moderation. Just think on that for a moment, and we're going to move on from here. My point is this. This is clearly a biblical gray area. Clearly a biblical gray area. I love Martin Luther. If you ever read much of his stuff, he's just funny. And I love this quote. You may not get as much of a kick out of his idea, but he said, Do you suppose that abuses are eliminated by destroying the object which is abused? Men can go wrong with wine and women. Shall we then prohibit and abolish women? And all the men said, No. No, we like our women and Martin Luther liked his wine, okay? So that's the way, I know that we, we look at that and it just sounds very, uh, it almost, almost, quotes like that almost come across to us as being unchristian because of what we've grown up in in this culture, because we've grown up largely in a prohibitionist culture and because of the war we just came through in our own county where lines were drawn that frankly there were lines drawn that should not have been drawn. I can remember vividly a conversation that I overheard in the barbershop the week after the alcohol vote. There was a gentleman that was getting his hair cut in the seat next to me, and he was talking to the barber about the alcohol vote. Everybody was talking about the alcohol vote. And the gentleman said this. He said, you know what? I wasn't even going to go out and vote. He said, I didn't care anything about this alcohol issue. I don't think it's going to be especially good for our county, but I didn't didn't care anything about the issue until I started hearing all of these hateful advertisements about it. And I decided for that reason alone, I was going to go to the polls and I was going to vote in favor of alcohol sales. Now, folks, let's just be really careful here. I know I'm walking in some area that's going to upset some folks. It's okay. Just be very careful here. Because there are some lines that are drawn that in the interest of the gospel of Jesus Christ need to be Erased. Let me show you what I mean. We're going to walk through a few things here this morning. First of all, we said the gospel gets distorted when loving is overcome by our learning. But it also gets distorted when law becomes legalism. That's what he's addressing here in the next few verses, verses 4 through 6. He said, therefore, as, the eating, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we could say, as to the drinking of alcohol, we know... We know that an idol has no real existence. He starts to get kind of theological here. There's no God but one. Uh, Though there are many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are and whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, from whom all things are and through whom we exist. What's he saying here? Well, it's a reference back to something that was so familiar to the Jewish faith of Paul's day. He's referencing Deuteronomy 6-4 in what was known as the Shema. In the book of Deuteronomy, every day a good Jew would get up from his bed and he would quote the Shema, which is the beginning of what we know as the Ten Commandments. We all know the Ten Commandments, don't have any other gods before me, don't cheat on your wife, don't steal, all those Ten Commandments. But the Jews began the, the Ten Commandments by quoting the Shema, which says, The Lord our God is one. That's where the law began for them. That was the very beginning of the law. Everything else hinged upon that, that the Lord our God is one. And so they would remind themselves of that every single day. And Paul is referencing it here because apparently the Corinthians had written to Paul and said, We know there's only one God. We know there's only one God, and so we don't need to be worshiping in these idols. We don't need to be going to these idolatrous temples. We don't need to be eating this meat because there's only one God. And if we're doing those kinds of things, then we're refuting the very basis of our belief as Christians. Right, Paul? That's our knowledge. Right, Paul? We did right. We did good, Paul. Right? Paul says, whoa, hold up a minute. You do well knowing that there is only one God. These idols really are nothing but don't let your learning override your loving. You see, legalism tends to portray biblical gray matters as black and white. We know this is bad, right, Paul? We know we need to draw the line here, right, Paul? We, we shouldn't even go near those temples, right, Paul? We shouldn't even think about how tasty that hamburger would be, right, Paul? Paul? We should become vegetarians and stay away from it altogether, right, Paul? Paul says, You're right in the basis of your knowledge, but in your legalism, you have missed the primary component of love. The truth that he's trying to get them to see is this. We must not suspend our Christian liberty for legalism. What does that mean? Legalism is when I take something in this scripture and I begin to add unto it rules and laws and regulations in order to make myself appear more and more holy and to make others feel more and more guilty. That's what the Pharisees of Jesus' day were so good at, adding unto the law in such a way that they could say, look how holy we are. We can keep all of these laws and you poor sinners out there. The same guys who looked at Jesus and said, he's a drunkard. By the way, don't you think that if Jesus had been a prohibitionist, if he had totally abstained from alcohol. Wouldn't it one of his disciples that would have stood up and gone, I can hear Peter already. He can't be a drunkard, he doesn't even drink. He didn't say that, did he? Now I know. Stepping into harsh territory here. But we want to believe what the Bible teaches, not just what we've been told. So the law the gospel gets distracted. When the law becomes legalism, the gospel also gets distracted. When liberty becomes license you see it's it's two sides here you can imagine yourself driving across a road and on either side of that road is an immense canyon That's what Paul's doing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He is driving this road off either side is a canyon that's going to lead you to death and destruction. On the one side, the canyon is legalism. On the other side, the canyon is this that we're getting ready to talk about. When liberty becomes license. Look at verses 7 through 13. He says, Not all possess this knowledge, and some, through former association with idols, they eat this food. As if really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. And then he, I love this statement in verse 8 Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. I pray the Lord would help us to take that up as our theme in relation to these gray areas. But take care of your right, Paul says. Take care that this right of yours does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, you can translate this to what we're talking about today, if anyone sees you who have knowledge drinking a beer, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to do the same? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. And there's where the sin comes. So liberty can become license. You see, sometimes we go to the other extreme and we tend to make black and white issues appear as if they're gray. Things the Bible speaks clearly on become gray. We talked about this back in August in the issue of homosexuality. The Bible speaks clearly as to the nature of that sin. We respond in Christian love toward that sin, but that does not mean that we... Accept and condone that sinful behavior as acceptable on the kingdom of God. Sometimes we make black and white matters appear to be gray. Paul's point is this. We're going to wrap this thing up. He's saying we might need to suspend our Christian liberty, not for the sake of legalism. Never. Paul would say never should you suspend your liberty in Christ for the sake of legalistic religion, but you might need to do it for the gospel. So here was the picture in the church at Corinth. The picture in the church at Corinth was you had these believers who thought themselves to be more mature, and they could go down and get a hamburger at the temple of Aphrodite and have no problem. It was not an issue for them. They were not tempted back toward idolatry. It was just a hamburger. But they had these other brothers who had just recently been delivered out of idolatry, had come to trust in Christ, but were still wrestling with that as an issue. And they would see those brothers eating in that temple and say, well, if it's okay for them, then it must be okay for me. But they knew internally their consciences were convicting them still because they hadn't dealt with the issue. They were still struggling with it. And so they were destroyed. Not, and I understand when he says destroyed, he's not saying that they were They lost their salvation. That's not what he's talking about. But he's saying their intimacy with God was destroyed because their consciences were at conflict with what they were doing. And the picture goes even this far. That these believers who thought themselves to be strong, notice Paul never says they're strong. That's very important in understanding this passage. Paul never says, you guys are strong. He's saying, understand that there are those over here who are weak. But those who were strong, the picture is they were going to these weaker brothers and saying, hey, come with us. We're going to take you down to the temple of Aphrodite. We're going to get us a hamburger. and We're going to show you how free we can be in Christ. They were flaunting their liberty at the expense of loving their brothers. It's the canyon on the other side of the road. Legalism on one side, license on the other. And Paul says so boldly here, he says so boldly in verse 13, If my eating makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let me say one thing about the stumbling block and we're going to move on to the final things this morning. This stumbling block that Paul's talking about has been so misused in Christian teaching. It's been used to draw further lines of legalism all along the path. Let me help you to understand something this morning, and and this is new for me as well, so I'm going to do the best I can. Paul here, when he talks about the stumbling block, he is not speaking of a hypothetical situation. He is not saying, okay, Corinthians, you need to stay out away from the temple of Aphrodite and the hamburgers there. You need to stay away from that because one of your weaker brothers might see you and they might be led astray. He doesn't say that. He's talking about literal occurrences that were taking place in that church. Not, not the hypothetical of avoid this because you might be a stumbling block. He was saying you might think about avoiding this because you're being a stumbling block. It's a reality. We take that to the issue of alcohol. There have been many who have said we should avoid alcohol altogether because you might be a stumbling block to someone But Paul doesn't give us the license to use that language for hypothetical situations. He's saying in the reality, if you, having freedom in Christ, could sit down and have a beer, and yet one of your brothers or sisters who you know is recovering from alcoholism comes to sit down and eat with you, he's saying out of love, for your brother, you might consider abstaining from that, that you would not lead your brother into sin. Not because drinking the beer is wrong, but because not loving your brother enough to abstain from it is wrong. Is that making sense? I'm hoping I can get some head nods on that. So what do we do? I'm going to leave you with four things this morning. How do we deal with these gray areas? We need to know. We don't just need to ignore them, but we need to know how to deal with these things. So I've given you four things there on your outline. And then it's under the heading, When choosing black or white in the gray areas, ask, is it blue? We know that's God's favorite color anyway, right? I was so waiting to use that on Mike Shrewsbury this morning. He wasn't even here. I was so disappointed. For you Louisville fans, that's just for you today. Kind of bring a little levity to the situation this morning. What do I mean? Just a little acronym here. How do we decide when we're dealing with these kinds of issues? How do we decide how we should proceed? First of all, is it biblical? Is it biblical? There's so much this word speaks about in the black and white. Fornication, that's a black and white issue. Homosexuality, that's a black and white issue. Cohabitation is a black and white issue. I can go on and on and on with the issues that are black and white. That doesn't mean that we can be hateful towards those who fall into those things, but it means that we ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ must stay away from those sinful things but when it's a gray area when it's an issue that's not so clear in the scriptures you first ask is it biblical if we can't answer that the next question we need to answer is this is it legal now here's where it becomes black and white for those sitting here in the front in our culture today in this country it is not legal for those under the age of 21 to drink alcoholic beverages we go to Romans chapter 13, and we see where this becomes straightforward for us. Romans 13, there it is. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, therefore whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And so, young people, this is the black and white for you. Because our culture says this, if you were growing up in Germany today, it would be a different story. If you were growing up in England today, it would be a different story. But you're not. You're growing up here. And the law of the land says alcohol is prohibited for you. And so to honor God, you abstain. Now, when you get to be 21, there will be decisions to be made and all those things. Again, understand what the Bible says. Drunkenness is clearly condemned. Addiction to alcohol is clearly a huge, huge issue in our culture that we need to stay away from. But in your own conscience at that point, you will be able to decide can I participate in this in moderation? This brings us to number three is it useful? Is it biblical? Is it legal? Is it useful? Useful for what? Useful for glorifying God and edifying others. Now, we could spend a whole message here. I don't have time. I'm just going to give you the bullet points, basically, of of what I'm trying to get across with that point. The idea being this. Can I do this thing, whatever it may be, whether it's drinking alcohol or whatever the issue has been. If I I say yes, it's a biblical. I say yes, it's legal. And the third question I have to ask is, is it useful for glorifying God and edifying others? Now, immediately, some in the room are going to say, well, how in the world can you glorify God by having a glass of wine? Folks, go home and do that study. I'm not going to draw the lines for you. But I am going to tell you a couple of things. First of all, I think there's a very real reality. When Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine and it wasn't grape juice, When he was accused by the Pharisees of being a drunkard, which means obviously he drank some himself, not to drunkenness. There's some places we need to be very careful because the legalism that we would institute will be just as destructive to this gospel as the flaunting of our liberties. So is it useful for glorifying God? Again, wine was used in worship in the Lord's Supper until a hundred years ago when a guy with the last name of Welch created something called Welch's grape juice. And we began using that. But until then, this was the standard. And then finally, is it enslaving? Is this thing in the gray area? Is it enslaving to me or others nearby? Notice I said nearby. This is not again, not that we would use the hypothetical to justify drawing lines the Bible doesn't draw, not that we would use the hypothetical to say, well, I might be a stumbling block, so I should just stay away from it altogether. That may be where your conscience leads you, and if I would say that, if if you say that, I would say to you, amen, if that's what your conscience leads you to do, that's where I would be today. There was a time in my life, I just want to be really honest with you, there was a time in my life when abstinence from alcohol for me was nothing more than prideful, religious legalism. That's all it was. That I could show how good of a person I was because I didn't drink. And folks, it's garbage. Hear me saying as one who walked in those steps, that is biblical garbage. just as much as if I had been a raging drunkard. At the same time, to understand that this, particularly when we're talking about alcohol, is an issue that does enslave many. My favorite uncle died because of alcoholism. I loved that man. My uncle Eric was a good man, but he was an addict. And it killed him, and it wrecked our family. And his two children will never be the same because he chose to follow his addiction. I know this is a painful subject. But folks, before we would pass judgment on this gray area, because of cultural prejudices, because of personal experiences, let us look to what the Word of God says and ask. Is it biblical? Is it legal? Is it useful? And is it enslaving? And if in doing so, if in doing so, you can have a glass of wine or a beer, then I can honestly say to you as your pastor, praise God. At this point in my life, I don't feel the liberty to do that. Here's the reason why. Tomorrow at lunchtime, if you were to walk into Miguel's and you would see me with the giant burrito pepe, which is awesome. I love the burrito pepe. If you were to see me with a giant burrito pepe and a beer in front of me, what would your first thought be? Here's what it would be, I can guarantee. You'd be thinking, man, my pastor is a really godly man. First of all, because he can put away that huge burrito, which I can, by the way. And second of all, because here he is having this. Uh, you have to be a Miller light at that point because the burrito would be all the calorie counts you could stand. I know I'm making light of it, folks, and I don't mean to make light of a subject that's painful for so many of us here in the room. I just want us to ask sincerely, what does the Bible say? And how can we, as the people of God, in a county that has been ripped wide open by this issue and is continuing to be ripped wide open, you think this issue is done just because we voted in alcohol sales? No, it's not done. It's still continuing to be an issue that's dividing people, families, churches. And all I'm saying is, let's look at what God's Word says. Let's not sacrifice our freedoms in Christ for any kind of legalism, though we may do it out of love. Let me leave you with two thoughts. I'm I'm done for real. 1 Corinthians uh, six twelve. I will actually just skip that one. You can read that on your own times. 1 Corinthians six twelve. Paul speaks about these things. But I want to leave you with a quote that has been get passed around for years. Uh, it's it's attributed to to Augustine. I don't know that he necessarily said it, but. It says, in necessary things unity, in uncertain things liberty, in everything charity. Translation for our message today, in the black and white things may we be so united. May we never budge on the fact that Jesus Christ alone is the way of salvation. There's no other way. He alone can save and will save all who call upon him. May we never be divided on that issue. In all those necessary things, may there be unity. But in the uncertain things, in the gray areas, may we have liberty, freedom to follow our conscience, and to recognize that freedom in others that we would not pass judgment on those gray areas. In uncertain things, liberty, and finally, in everything, charity, which is an old-fashioned way of saying love. Let all that you do be done in love. And folks, the reality is, some of you in this room have friends, family members, co-workers, people that you do love. That perhaps the very best thing that you could do to show them the love of Christ is to sit down at a table with them and share the gospel over a cold beer. Because love is the rule, folks. As long as we're flaunting these legalistic expectations, which is what our world thinks the church is all about. As long as we're living in that land off that side of the canyon, it's only death. And no one is coming to that because they don't want that. They have that in every other area of their lives. when we come to the gospel and what the gospel says and how the gospel brings us freedom in Christ, not a freedom that we would flaunt to the point where we'd go off the other side of the road, but a freedom that would allow us to walk that straight and narrow path. It's hard. It has been hard even to preach this this morning. But the, the straight and narrow path where we are maintaining that what the Bible says is truth. What the Bible says is life. What the Bible says is the way, the way that you need to walk in. And there is freedom in this way. Freedom to love. And whatever it means to love, to show love, to sacrifice in love, to live in love, that is what you do. Father, help us. Hard issues, God. There is nothing easy about these gray areas, and I think that's the point. Because in the wrestling, in the struggle over how we will live in relation to these things, There we see the beauty of this gospel. That this gospel says that it is so much more important for me to love than to be right. That this gospel says that it's so much more important for me to care for my brother than it is for me to flaunt my knowledge or to flaunt my freedoms. In this gospel, you've called us to a self-sacrificing love that lays our life down for our brothers and sisters. That in the end, it's not even about us being the freed-up ones, it's about us being slaves to Christ, ministers of the gospel walking steadfastly in your word and being the light of the world. I pray you convict us this morning, God. Rescue us from legalistic religion and rescue us from that place where we would flaunt our liberty at the expense of others and teach us to love. To love your word, to love your people. And to do it all for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we stand and sing together. I want to invite you. There's some business you need to do with the Lord this morning. I invite you to come and to pray. Kent and I will be standing here at the front if we could, could pray with you. I know that this is a hot button issue and there are many things that go along with it in our hearts and in our minds. The greatest thing is this, the greatest is this, to know you are loved by God in such a way that He wants you to love others. Whatever that means for you this morning, I invite you to respond as we sing together.